Paul began this personal letter to his young protege, Timothy, by encouraging him to be faithful in his trust of Christ and to act with boldness rather than giving in to his natural timidity. After writing of the importance of boldness, he next called Timothy to remain faithful to God. We are in this book study in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, and the key verse we find in chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That is how Paul finished the race that was set before him. And he encouraged Timothy, and he encourages us to finish strong. And a key aspect of finishing strong is found at the end of chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, where Paul lays out three things we must do in order to remain faithful to a faithful God. The first thing he tells us is to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. We see that beginning in verse 13. If we would just read the first two uh, verses uh, there, verses 13 and 14, where he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, Paul and Timothy had known each other for about 15 years at this point. About 15 years prior to the writing of this letter, Timothy joined up with Paul on his second missionary tour and had been with him much of that time. And the times when Timothy wasn't with Paul, it was because Paul trusted him so much that he would leave him in that city that that really needed some leadership. So he was either with Paul or he was serving as his trusted delegate for most of those 15 years. So these men had a tight relationship. But in 2 Timothy we have this shadow that is cast over every verse of the letter. Paul knows he is going to die very soon. And it seems that he's made peace with this idea. The whole feel of this letter is like, hey, this seems to be my time. I'm prepared for it. And so he tells Timothy, I'm not going to be here much longer. I need to know that you are going to remain faithful to what I pass on to you. All the things I've poured into you, I need to know that you're going to remain faithful. And deep in his heart, uh, in Paul's heart, is this idea that pastors and teachers and godly leaders must remain faithful to the truth. Or as he says here, hold fast the pattern of sound words. And there's a couple of things we can grab from this. First of all, that phrase, hold fast, it gives the idea that someone or something would try to take the truth from Timothy. You have to hold fast to something if someone wants to pull it away from you. So Timothy, you hold fast. He says, don't let anyone pull you away from it and don't let go of it. You keep that. So he says, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. He received it from Paul. But also notice in verse 14 that good things or that good thing which was committed to you Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is the key to our being faithful. God requires faithfulness from us that is greater than we can fulfill in our own abilities, in our own resources. Unless we walk in the Spirit and are filled with the Spirit, we can't keep faithful to what we must keep faithful to. 
I think we tend to think of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives only in what's obviously supernatural. Like when someone is healed, well, that's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Or some, some miraculous answer to prayer, that that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Or some unusual circumstance that is used to bring someone to faith in Christ, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt those are amazing works of the Holy Spirit. But I would add, if a person stays biblically true to God's word through decades of ministry, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. I know sometimes we go, well, that's kind of boring. You know, that's just kind of mundane. Listen, some, sometimes the Holy Spirit is very much at work in what appears to be something unbelievably boring to the outside world. What an indiv- or when an individual holds fast to biblical truth, that can be an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to be faithful to God's word, it means that we have to be be faithful to it, even when it costs us something. You know, the pattern in the world today is for people to be faithful uh, to something only as long as it serves them, for as long as it serves their purposes, uh, only as if it serves their interests. But once it starts costing them something, then oh, that's it. They're done. Forget that. Who is going to be faithful to that? Well, I love what David says in Psalm 15, verse 4. But he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's a poetic way of saying that he'll keep his promises even when it costs him something. He'll keep his oath even when it hurts him to do so. That's the kind of faithfulness that shows itself when it costs uh, to be faithful, when there's a cost involved. Now notice one more thing in verse 13. He says, hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. I think that gives us a well-rounded picture of how that person or how that pastor is to remain faithful to the word. He is to remain faithful to the word of God in faith and in love. There are some who have seemed to have crossed the word love out of that verse. They will keep the word in faith, and they're quick to let you know and everyone else know that about all of that, but there seems to be a loss of love in what they say. Now listen, faithfulness without love, it, it could be an appropriate description of what the Pharisees were like. They considered themselves to be quite faithful, and by most measures, you would say that they were. They were faithful to the letter. They were faithful in that regard, but where was the love? Where was the love for Jesus? Where was their love for others? It was not among the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So it's not enough for us just to hold on to the truth. We have to hold on to it in faith and in love. And this is so important because not everyone is faithful to the truth. We see that in the next verse, verse 15. This you know that all of those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, if you were to have your name recorded in the Bible, this would not be how you would want it to be listed there. Uh, like these guys who, who turned their back on the Apostle Paul. That's what they're famous for. Now, these two men were not the only ones, but Paul found it necessary to call them out specifically 
uh, Phygellus and Hermogenes, since they were likely the best known or the leaders of, of some group that were doing this. Now, I also need to point out that when it says all those in Asia there, that is not a reference to China or Japan or Korea or Taiwan. In the Roman Empire, they had a province that they called Asia Minor. It's what we call modern-day Turkey. That's what he's referring to here. Modern-day Turkey, that's where the city of Ephesus was, which is where Timothy oversaw this great work that God was doing. But Paul says, all those in Asia have turned away from me at the end of his life. And after an amazing missionary career, the great apostle Paul was almost all alone. Not not only was he not celebrated by the world, he wasn't even that highly regarded among other Christians. There's such a, a sense of sadness in these words. Here's Paul. He's in this prison cell. He's waiting for his execution. And all of the places where he had ministered, they turned their back on him. I think a lot of Christians, even in Paul's day, they looked at Paul and said, yeah, he's too extreme. He's just too committed. He's, he's overboard. Or he's not flashy enough. He's not famous enough. And even though God had done a tremendous work through Paul in Asia Minor, many turned away from him. And no doubt, Paul tells Timothy this as a warning. Like, hey, Timothy, you need to keep your eyes on Phygellus and Hermogenes and people like them. That's why he points them out specifically. But fortunately, not everyone was like Phygellus and Hermogenes. I like just saying those two names. Those are just roll off the tongue there, Phygellus and Hermogenes. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So not everyone had forgotten about Paul. He still had a few friends, and one of them was this man, Onesiphorus. He was different than Phygellus and Hermogenes. He was faithful to Paul even in these difficult circumstances. So Paul prayed for mercy upon him and his household. Notice the things he says about him in verse 16. He says, he often refreshed me. He was refreshing to Paul. And two, he says, he was not ashamed of my chain. Paul was a condemned criminal for what he had done, but Onesiphorus was not ashamed of him. And then third, in verse 17, he sought me out very zealously and he found me. There were a lot of prisons in Rome. Rome's a big city, and he had to go from place to place to find the prison that Paul was in, and he finally found him. And his conduct was so wonderful that Paul could say in verse 18, you know that this man had a reputation for being someone who had served me so well. Onesiphorus lived up to the meaning of his name, which means help bringer, and that's exactly what he did. That's who he was. He brought help, and he brought comfort to the Apostle Paul. So the first thing Paul points out, in order to remain faithful to a faithful God, hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. Second, be strong in grace. Be strong in grace. We see that in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 there. 
He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul turns his focus back to Timothy. And I touched on this last week, how we often assume that Timothy was timid, that he was reserved or reticent, or that he maybe even lacked courage. And he may very well have been. I mean, we get that idea because Paul addresses that with him so often throughout these letters to encourage him to be bold, to be strong. But it should be emphasized that Timothy was a young man, and he was given an enormous responsibility to oversee all of these churches in the region of Ephesus. So he needed this exhortation. Be strong, Timothy. You have a big task ahead of you. You need to receive this strength. And one of the greatest, uh, the great things that we can receive from God is his strength. I, I love the verse. It's an, found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 and 31, where he writes that he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. In verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what we need. We need that so often. Just a a fresh renewal of strength from the Lord. We need our strength renewed by God every day. We need to have what's made available to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We need God's strength. In fact, I'll say this. If you live solely on your own abilities, you're probably not fulfilling everything God has for you. I believe God designed the Christian life to be lived beyond our own abilities. There are areas in your life where God wants you to step out in faith, where he wants you to trust in him, that he will give you the strength and the ability to do something beyond your natural ability. That's how God designed us, to keep us reliant upon him and to, uh, upon his strength, that we're relying on his strength, not our own. And that's why he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, nothing can make you as strong as the grace of God. His grace that undeserved approval of God. Do you want the approval of God? I do. Well, and some might say, well, wait a minute. You know, um, an undeserved approval? Don't I want to earn my way before God? Don't I want to earn my approval? Don't I want God to approve me based on what he sees in me, How what a wonderful person I am and all that? No, I don't. I don't want to operate with God on that basis But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because he took the penalty and the shame of my sin on the cross, and because God sees us in Christ Jesus, that's how I want to be seen. And he says, I will give you this approval unconditionally, this approval, this unmerited favor, this grace. And now that I know that God receives me freely in Christ Jesus, that brings such strength to my life. One thing it does is that it makes me less afraid to fail. If I believe God leads me to do something, if I sincerely have have sought the Lord and I believe he's told me and led me in a certain direction and I step out in faith 
And if I'm completely wrong, I know he still loves me. I know he still extends his unmerited favor and approval. Before I come up to teach, I don't have to ask, well, have I earned enough blessing from God this week to, to be able for God to use me here this morning? No, because it, it, the reality is I haven't. I haven't earned enough blessing from God. The way of grace is not by earning and deserving. The way of grace is by believing and receiving, that we receive it. And when we simply say to God, I will believe and receive the grace that you have for me in Christ Jesus, then I can come up and say, yes, God is empowering me, and I'm trusting in him. And even though I don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, God, you love me, and you love these people, and you want to bring a blessing into their life. And you're going to speak, and you're going to use, use that. That is the strength of grace in action. And Paul knew what it was like to receive the strength of God's grace. You remember the issue Paul had with the thorn in the flesh, and he asked the Lord to remove it. And Paul was such a mighty man of prayer. I believe that when he prayed to God, asking God to remove it, that Paul believed God was going to remove it. And he prayed, uh, but nothing happened. So he prayed again, and nothing happened. He prayed a third time, And it still wasn't gone, but God answered his prayer. God answered in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where he writes, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God answered his prayer. And Paul received that answer saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that you have the strength of grace for me, that you've given me that. And since Paul knew that strength of grace in his own life, he could then preach it to Timothy as well and to us. Well, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, back in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we talked about Timothy's responsibility to keep the truth. But at the same time, you give it away. He says, entrust what's been given to you to other faithful men. Why? So God's work will continue on throughout the generations. He says, it's great that you've received this, Timothy. Now pass it on to others who are faithful, who are faithful as well. And this is one of the important aspects of calling for anyone who's a pastor or for anyone in ministry, for that matter, anyone in ministry, part of your job is passing on what God has poured into you. So other people can do what you do and to see God do a work in them and a work through them. So they grow strong in the grace of God. So that's part of the job description, passing these things on, entrusting these things to other faithful men. So Paul says, in order to remain faithful to a faithful God, hold fast to the truth, be strong in grace, and third, persevere through hardship. And Paul is now going to give three illustrations of what it's like to serve the Lord faithfully. And the first illustration is the soldier. We see that in verse 3. He says, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life 
that he may please him who had listed him as a soldier. Notice, this is not a suggestion. Paul says, you therefore must endure hardship. It is a must in the Christian life. And how must you endure hardship? As a good soldier. A soldier expects to endure hardship. At least the good soldier does. So it's not enough just to say that the Lord drafted me into the Lord's army. No, you must be a good soldier. And good soldiers expect some measure of hardship. A good soldier doesn't think that his service is all about R&R, when they get to go on R&R, when they get to go on leave, and all of that. No, a soldier has to be ready in the battle. And he does it by this, look at verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. A soldier has to leave many things behind if he's going to be a good soldier. And I know we've had uh, some of you here have been in the military, and the first thing that you lost when you joined the military was your hair, right? They, they just shave your head or trim it way back. You, or your civilian clothes, you, you lose that. You, you lose your privacy. You lose your food choices. You don't get to choose what you eat. You eat what's presented to you. You lose your comforts. You give up those things because they would entangle you if you were to hang on to them while you're in the military, while you're in warfare. And this is what Paul is saying. Timothy, you can't have it all if you're going to really be effective in the Lord's army. There are some things you will have to give up. Jesus put it this way. To all believers, to all believers in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If there are things entangling you in your life, live for God like a good soldier. Give them up because your heart is to please the Lord. Look at, again at verse 4, that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. If you don't endure hardship and put away the things that entangle you, it, you won't be pleasing to your commanding officer. Did you know you do have a commanding officer? I love Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus, it's Jesus uh, appearing before Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. We have a commanding officer, and it is Jesus Christ, and we owe total obedience to him as such, as our commanding officer. So the first example is a soldier. You endure hardship, and you avoid entanglements. The second example is in verse 5. It says, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Paul loves a good sports analogy. I think Paul was a sports fan. He mentions track and field. He mentions boxing. He mentions wrestling. He used illustrations from the world of athletics to illustrate principles about the Christian life. And here's one from athletics in general. And here he says, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There is a rule book. And you can't ignore the rule book in your competition. In a football game, when the quarterback hands off to the running back and he breaks through the line and then he, he 
move, makes a move, he dodges somebody, he finds some open space, and then he breaks past all of the defenders, and he races towards the end zone and for a touchdown, and everyone's celebrating, and then there's a yellow piece of laundry back there at the line of scrimmage. There's a penalty. They throw the yellow flag on the field, and one of the officials comes forward, says, you know, holding, offense, number 78, and bring it all back. You can't do that. You can't wrap around a defender and just hold them like that. That's against the rules. You're not competing according to the rules. Therefore, you don't win. Listen, this is an important principle in athletics, but also in Christian service. In our service to the Lord, you must compete according to the rules. You are not crowned unless you do. It is possible for us to make the mistake of thinking we can make up our own rules in the Christian life. Some people really believe this, and and I know because I've talked to some of them, they believe that they have some special arrangement with God. That, you know, I know what the Bible says, I, I know that that's sin for most other people, but, you know, me and God have this arrangement he knows what's going on, and that's why I, I'm, I'm excused in this particular area of my life. God told me it was okay. Can I just say that if you believe that way, and in something that the Scripture is very clear about, there's no, it's not a gray area, which we talked about in some of our Romans studies. It's not a gray area. It's something spelled out very clearly. If you believe that you have some special arrangement with God, that you're different than every other Christian— you have been deceived. You really have. We're all under the same rules, and we must compete according to those rules. So you have the soldier who must endure hardship and avoid entanglements. You have the athlete who must compete according to the rules. And third, you have the farmer. Look at verse 6. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Now, I think he saved the best for last because... There is nothing glamorous about being a farmer. Do you know any famous soldiers? Sure. Yeah, you, every once in a while, you know, a hero of battle. Uh, they, they get mentioned on television. Uh, you, we see their medals on their, on their uniforms. There are parades for soldiers. What about athletes? Are you kidding me? I mean, athletes get a crown of glory and loads of money. I mean, we celebrate athletes Big time. Do you know any famous farmers? Anyone? Did you know, I had to look this up. There actually is a farmer of the year. Go look it up. Um, It's regional. It's not like a global farmer of the year, not that I found, but it is regional. There's like the the Gulf Coast farmer of the year. There's the Texas. There's the Sun Belt. There's different regions where they actually have a farmer of the year But I had no idea until I looked it up. Do you know why I had no idea? There's no farmer's channel on TV. That's why. You know, think about it a decade or two ago. You didn't know any famous cooks other than maybe Julia Childs, right? And now they've got their own network. There's all these famous chefs. But there's no farmer's channel, at least not on my cable. And it's interesting. We need the farmer more than we need the athlete, for sure. And we even need the farmer, even more than the soldier, at least in our immediate context in our day-to-day living, we need food. 
We, we need food to eat. But just by its nature, it is an unglamorous profession. To be a farmer, you have to work hard, number one. And it's often, it's, it's tedious and it's boring. And though the nation's best farmer isn't a celebrity, he must work hard all the same. And Paul knew the value of hard work. He compared himself with the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I labored more abundantly than they all. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Comparing himself to all the other apostles. But, but he adds, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He knew that his hard work was due to the work of God's grace in his life. Nevertheless, he knew that if he didn't work as hard as he did, his ministry would not have been as effective. And some people expect something for nothing. But those who are mature, and they they know that you get out of things what you put into it. You get out of things what you put into it. And if you put very little effort into your Christian walk, then it shouldn't surprise you that you get very little joy, very little reward, or very little satisfaction in your life with God. So the first aspect of the farmer, it's hard working. But don't miss the second one. He says they must be the first to partake of the crops. He says, Timothy, when you have spiritual food to give the congregation, you better eat of it first. Now, what does that mean? Well, for pastors and teachers, pastors and teachers have to let the sermon speak to them even when you fall short of it. If I could only teach the things that I have absolute mastery of in in the Christian life, we would have very short messages and we would be skipping over big chunks of Scripture. If we're talking about things that I have absolute mastery of in my life, but my intention is to do the things that God would have me and have all of us to do. I need to eat of the food before I give it out. I need to be reading, studying, praying over the text. I need to let it speak to me and work in me before I give it out to others. And I really believe that one of the reasons, there may be others, I don't know what they are, but one of the reasons God called me to do what I do as a pastor and as a teacher is God knew I needed to read a lot. He knew I needed special attention, that I needed to just read in the repetition of being in God's word. Like, David, you need some special attention, so I'm going to put you in this ministry role, so you're, you're reading a lot, you're praying a lot. And I'm glad because I know the work that it does in my life. I'm thankful for it. But when a pastor doesn't do this, and they teach in a detached way, and, and the word of God is not, it hasn't had its impact in their life, when he has not had that fellowship with God in prayer and he prepares or doesn't prepare to teach, he's in trouble. And so is the congregation who's listening to him. There's trouble when that happens. So that's why he tells Timothy to eat of of the crops first, speaking spiritually. Verse 7, he says, Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Paul just explained three illustrations of the Christian life as a soldier as an athlete, and as a farmer. And this is so important for all of us, not only for those who would be preachers and teachers or pastors, but for every one of us in the Christian life. Each of these three occupations need great perseverance and endurance in order to succeed. 
The soldier who stops fighting before the battle is over may never come back from that battle. The athlete who stops running before the race is over is never going to cross the finish line. And the farmer who stops working before the harvest is complete will never see the fruit of their crops. The point being, be resolved before God that with him helping you by his spirit, you will persevere through hardship and remain faithful to the end. It's, it's a resolve in your heart before the Lord that, Lord, I intend to do this to the end. I want to finish strong, and by your grace and by your spirit, I'm going to do that. And remember, Paul is running his race, and he can see the finish line. He knows his life is almost over, and he, he can see the finish line, and it's like he's shouting back to Timothy, who still has more to go. It's kind of like the, if you see the races, I think it's the 10K where they do it on a track. And Paul's done, but he sees Timothy's got a lot more laps to go, and he's, he's cheering Timothy on. You can do it, Timothy. You can finish strong. You can make it to the end, but you need to have the perseverance of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. Persevere. And then he says, verse 8, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He says, Timothy, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the essential fact that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy and promise, he rose from the dead. Verse 9, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. So Paul's in prison. He's in chains, wondering if the next uh, set of footsteps that pass are going to be the ones that lead him away to some place where they're going to take out a soldier's sword and behead him. He knows that that's what's on the horizon. Yet with great resolve, he says, but the word of God is not chained. You can put me in chains, but you're not going to chain up the word of God. You know, the Bible has been attacked more than any other book in history. It has been burned, it has been banned, it has been mocked, it has been twisted, it has been ignored, but the word of God still stands forever. It doesn't return void. And no one has ever been able to stop the work of the word of God. Now, if there is any sense in which the, the word is chained, it is chained when uh, preachers or teachers sound more like self-help books than proclaiming God's word. Or when scripture is used sparingly in a message, maybe it's like used as a spice or some seasoning in a dish, like a little dash here, here's a verse here, here's a verse there, instead of being the main course. That's in a sense that it could be the word be chained. But the word of God can't be chained, but we can put a chain around the Bible when we are unfaithful to him and his word. And that's why it says, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, If my being afflicted can somehow bring blessing to the people of God, then I'll do it. It's worth it. I will endure all things for the sake of God's people. He says, I love the people of God. I love to see them grow in their walk with God. I love to see them remaining faithful. So I will endure that hardship. I'll persevere in this prison cell. In verse 11, 
This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This faithful saying has four lines to it. It's thought to be, it might have been poetry or even a hymn of some kind. But let's look at each of those four lines, beginning with that first line. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, this hits home for Paul. Some guy's sharpening his sword to sever his head. But Paul knew that this had application for every believer. And I mean that literally because there is a real and spiritual way that every believer has died with Jesus Christ. We are born into this world identified with Adam. But when we put our faith in Christ, when we are born again by his spirit, our identification is no longer with Adam, it is with Jesus Christ. And if we are identified with Jesus Christ, then when he died on the cross, we died on the cross. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. In fact, God has given us a wonderful picture of this spiritual work because the Bible says this happens spiritually for all who are in Christ. And there is a physical illustration of this in what we call baptism. When a believer is baptized, they died with Christ. They are buried with him, and then they rise to new life when coming out of the water. Baptism is a beautiful physical enactment of what happens spiritually. But there's an even more literal sense of this first line, and that is martyrdom paying the ultimate price for following Jesus. And this is probably at the forefront of Paul's mind as he's writing this. If we die with him, we aren't dead, we live with him. So it is true in the martyr sense that Paul would soon know for himself. But it's also true spiritually for every believer. Now look at the next phrase there in verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If you are weary and don't know if you can carry on, if you don't think you can endure, let me tell you this, you are destined for a throne to reign with him. God wants you to rule and reign with him. And this endurance race that we call the Christian life, is, this is to prepare you for the throne that God has for you. You are going to rule and reign with him. I don't know what all that means, but it sounds awesome, doesn't it? The, to be able to rule and reign with him, not because of who we are, but because he lets us. He, he, he has that for us. So he says, hang in there. Don't give up. You're going to reign with him. Well, the third line says this, if we deny him, he shall also deny us. That's heavy. Jesus said, something quite plainly regarding this as well. In Matthew 10, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That is heavy. Now, after that line, I could see some believers getting a bit nervous. Have I denied him? Will I deny him? Will I make it to the end? Will I remain faithful to the end? That's why I'm so glad he closes with one more line. If we are faithless, 
he remains faithful. If someone does fall away, it doesn't change who God is. He remains faithful. It never changes his faithfulness to us. Our being unfaithful will never make God unfaithful. That's good news. He will never turn his back on you. The Christian can stand faithful as God empowers them. And even if someone has been wavering, they still have time. As the Spirit of God calls them even now to turn back and to turn back to the faithful God. The Father is waiting for you to come back if that's a place you find yourself in. Like the father of the prodigal son who says, I'm watching, I'm waiting for you to come back. I welcome you with open arms. I will never break faith with you, even if you're off doing your own thing. This is the God that we serve. So if someone is left wondering, have I been faithless? Have I denied my Lord in any way? Well, even if that's a question in your mind, what do you do? Do like the prodigal son who came to his senses. He saw his, his unfaithfulness and he came back home to the father who was waiting to welcome him with open arms, faithful to him the whole time. You run to a father who has always been faithful to you and always will be. You'll never find God with his, his arms closed like this to you. We might get that picture of him sometimes, but that's not the God of God in heaven. His arms are opened, and he says, come to me. And by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, as we hold fast to the truth, and as we are strong in grace, and as we persevere through hardship, we will remain faithful to a faithful God. Let's bow our heads together.